0: Dr. Alan Leica here and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Mitzi Perdue is a professional speaker, uh, public speaker, who talks on how to make your family business thrive. But she also brings a lot of real-life suggestions to her stuff, and that's why we love her. Uh, Mitzi Purdue draws on her family experience of origin, the Henderson Estate Company, which dates back to 1840 and was the forerunner of Sheraton Hotels. Her father was president co-founder of the chain. She also looks to her marital family. She was widow of Frank Purdue from Purdue Farms that began in 1920. As a businesswoman herself, Mincy founded a Ceres, that's C-E-R-E-S Farms, in 1974. Her sons continue to manage the company, and it's the major supplier of wine grapes to Joel Gott, uh, Robert Mondavi, Kendall Jackson, Gallo, McManus, Sutter Home, the Geo and the Wine Group. So, you probably tasted some of those wines and had some of them in your life. Most recently, she authored The Frank Purdue Way Simple Steps, Simple, a Super Success. And she's also offered I Didn't Bargain for This, her story of growing up as a Hotel Harris. She also isn't been in the publishing media. She's been a syndicated columnist for 22 years, and she's done an amazing a lot with TV. As she returned as TV as hostess of Earth X TV's "The Pen and the Planet." Well, welcome, Nancy.
1: Oh, what a joy to be here with you! And oh, I love that introduction. Wow! Thank you so much. know. Let's
0: go back to when you were a little girl. What was it like to grow up in, in in as a a person in the Sheraton
1: family? Well, it was it was really cool. But my my parents had a huge goal in your in their lives, and it's almost something that's as if it's dropped out of civilization. But their goal was to bring up kids who weren't spoiled, and you know that meant. That meant chores like mucking out barns. I bet I've mucked out more barns than most people. Uh, It meant uh, whatever I wanted. Father wouldn't just give it to me. It would be earn it. And I remember I I was the youngest of five. And I can remember it wasn't until I was 12 years old when mother got some clothing for me. It was a pair of gloves that weren't hand-me-downs. So as I said, they put enormous effort into trying to have their kids not be spoiled. And that included, uh, we went to private schools, but also public schools. And I cherish that, that they took the trouble to do that.
0: Do you think that's important for children not to be spoiled in this day and age?
1: I think a spoiled child is an unhappy child. And I also think of some wisdom from my late husband. If you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. So if you want happy children, how about keeping them on a real short leash and not giving them lots of stuff, and then they become appreciative for whatever they get?
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's a true statement. That's what I've tried to do with my children as well. Let them grow up. Let them learn the value
1: of things.
0: Because if you don't know the value of things, you really don't appreciate anything.
1: Well, I grew up with a woman. I, let's, I, I need to disguise the details of this no end. But she was a woman from enormous wealth. And I remember I, I got to know her, but I also got to know a guy who dated her. And he told me, it's very, very hard to have her as a girlfriend yes. because whatever treat had would tried to arrange for her, like a super duper restaurant or fabulous seats at a Broadway opening or something, she'd already done it. There was just nothing that really impressed her anymore. And I wanted to make my life the opposite of hers. And by the way, I don't claim that I escaped being spoiled, but I will claim that my parents put a lot of effort into trying to have me not be spoiled.
0: Yeah, and that's that's important, and I think that's true.
1: Going back
0: to your early business
1: life, uh, are there
0: lessons to be learned from that as well that people can take home with them?
1: Well, I'd love to share something that my father did because you know, as a child, I discovered that the way to get parental attention was to ask him about business. And, you know, because they are five and in every family, everybody's competing to get daddy's and mommy's attention. Well, I could just guarantee get daddy's attention yeah. if I asked him, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And one of the stories that I cherish is he felt that his entire success was built on the people who worked with him. That, you know, they tended to stay with him for life and they tended to go the extra mile. So I asked him, how did you get people to be so loyal and he told me a story of how you know his initial contact with any of the say he spotted a new hotel and let's say it's during the great depression because that's when sheraton began he said whenever he'd buy a new hotel he'd invite all the workers into the hotel ballroom and if it's a large hotel there could easily be 800 people and father would tell them he knew that everybody was worried about they're going to are they going to keep their job, and father would tell them, I want every one of you to keep your job, and I have a reason for that. It's because you know your job better than anybody else in the world, and my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you'll see in, in a few months, this is gonna be the most popular hotel in the city. We're gonna to prove to the rest of the world that even though it's the Great Depression, things can turn around and get better. And so I asked him, why did you take that approach? And he said, first of all, if somebody's worried about their job, they're not gonna to listen to the word you say until you like take away that, that pain point. And then he also said, It's so much better if somebody is working like not making beds or tending bar. No, they're working as part of a team to build the best hotel that's gonna turn things around and be an example to the rest of the city. And he said, and this is the takeaway. He said, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. When he took over a hotel, the first money he ever spent on any hotel was in areas that paying public would never see. It would be like the employee dining rooms, the employee lockers, the employee showers, even what would normally be grubby old corridors. He'd spruce up everything. And so as a little girl, I'm asking, why why wouldn't you spend money on things that the paying public would see? And he said that the success of, of any enterprise depends on the people who work there And people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. And if I communicate to them by putting the first money in the areas that only they will see, it communicates to them how important they are.
0: That that is important. And I think that was the success of of his uh, businesses as he saw the things. And he made it work because the people made it work.
1: And I would say that's exactly the same story as my late husband. In fact, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising how many attitudes two very successful people had that were identical. M- mainly that, that your job as a leader is to bring out the best in the people who work with you. you no, know,
0: that's important. And I, I think that's how you carry a business and make it to another level and make it to a, another level of standing. Uh, let's go into your your late husband's processes. You wrote a whole book on it. Let's talk about that for a little while.
1: Oh, I'd love to. In fact, I wrote two books. Well, in fact, I wrote three books on my late husband. The one uh, the one that I'd love most to talk about right now. This is just hot off the press, and it's it's a shortened version of some of the things that I said in a book that was three hundred pages long. But it's, I thought people are busy and it's kind of a nuisance to carry around a great big, heavy book with you. What if there was like a shortened version that had similar wisdom in it? And so this book, it's, well, let's see. It's, it's a series of stories and then how Frank, what Frank learned from those stories. And we could start with one called Listening.
0: Let's go through that. Let's learn how to listen today.
1: All right. Why is listening important? Well, many reasons, but among them, if you're listening, you're learning. If you're talking, you're probably not learning. But on top of that, if you're really, really listening to somebody, you're making them feel important and valued. And Frank's, I I almost think Frank's purpose in life was to have people feel important, And one of the things that I noticed is in almost any interaction with other people, he'd be listening 90% of the time and speaking 10% of the time. And I find that really hard to do, but I watched that Frank did it. And when he was listening to you, I mean, I I thought he was brilliant at it because he would have a look on his face that just communicated. You're the most important person in my world right now, and I really value everything you have to say. And just think what that makes a person feel.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And I think listening is a very important skill. I, I think it's something people should try to do, but I think it's something that's very hard to do because everybody wants to get their own two cents. in.
1: Well, you know, this is a question of do as I say, not as I do, because I recognize how important it is. I recognize how it makes people feel. I honest, honest, honest try, but I don't succeed at the level Frank did. But there were other things that he did with listening. He he was remarkably open-minded. And for example, if he was going into a meeting, let's say it's a sales meeting and there, I'm making this up, but imagine there are 20 people in the room. Frank told me that when he'd go into meetings, he, he worked to make sure that they didn't know the outcome that he wanted because his feeling was, and this is a direct quote, there's a lot of brilliance in this room and my job is to tap into it. And if he's doing all the talking and not much of the listening, he's not going to learn the smart ideas that are there. And then there's a PS to that. He particularly listened to people who disagreed with him. And I found this just remarkable because, again, this is something, it's doable, but it's difficult. He, would, he had no use for yes men. So that the people who would argue with him the most were very often the ones who rose fastest in the company.
0: Well, that's good. And I always find that in a group meeting like that, it's often hard for people to um, say their true meetings because they're always afraid of what somebody else is going to say. And they're always afraid what what the boss is going to say.
1: Well, Frank was aware of that, and you know something else. I'm a writer by trade, so um, you know it's almost my business to notice this kind of thing. But I'd notice when he was in meetings. You know, he's he's the person whose name appears on the check of all the people in the room. So you know, he's Mister Big, he's Mister Alpha, but I would notice in meetings. That instead of being the super alpha male, you know, shoulders back, chest out, chin up, taking up space, big gestures, that's how he could have acted. I think that's how most people in his position would act as the alpha male. But since his purpose was to draw the best thinking out of everybody, I would notice that his posture was almost shy, almost it wasn't quite hunched over, but it was. He wasn't taking up a lot of space. He wasn't using up all the oxygen in the room. It was more, we're a team and we're all in this together. And I'm pretty sure that that was one of his secrets of success. He could get everybody to talk and say what they really felt. And you know, another of his phrases, I don't think it was original with him, but he sure as heck used it. None of us is as smart as all of us.
0: Yeah, I, might, I I think that's true you know if you have two ideas and I have two ideas, there's four ideas and if you have another person with two ideas there's six ideas and not only that there's a multiplicative effect by all those ideas coming together and germinating and I think that's what your your late husband really realized is that's where the true magic comes out.
1: yeah I mean wasn't it genius of him to figure this out and by the way, he didn't start out as somebody that people would have predicted would be a great success. When he started working with his father, it was a two-man operation. Who would have guessed that it would grow to 20,000 employees at the time of his death? And you know, I, I just wonder where, where he got the understanding of, of human nature to do this, but he did. You know, he probably
0: learned it along the way from his early, early uh, bringing up as well. You know, he probably learned it in his business himself, but he he f- probably found it uh, from working with people.
1: Uh, well, I, I will say that that he read lots of books and he attended lectures. And I, I call him an informivore. And you know about a carnivore eats meat. Well, yeah. an informivore eats information. And I felt Frank was just always on the lookout for smart ideas and you know, his reading, for example, it was so, you could say undisciplined, but I would say that that it was on purpose that he'd read on a huge variety of subjects because, you. well, he used to say, you never know where you'll find a good idea. But, you know, he, I, he would read books on the mafia. He would read books on uh, Andrew Carnegie. He would read books on how the Brooklyn Bridge was built. Uh, he loved John Grisham novels. He was, but I think it was always sort of in the back of his mind. Mm, that's a smart idea. Maybe I could use that.
0: Yeah, that's huge, that's huge. Now, see, you wouldn't think a farm would need all these ideas to move forward. You, you wouldn't think a farm, which is thought to be a fairly simple process of doing things, wouldn't need ideas from so many different places.
1: And yet, well, one of my theories of, of why Frank was a success and what it would take for anybody to get farther along the road to success is he had an amazing talent stack. And by that, I mean he had he knew how to do an enormous number of things, whether it was accounting or human uh, resources or poultry breeding or marketing or advertising or lobbying. I mean he one one of his gifts was he figured out how how to get from here to there and then he'd he'd study and learn the skills it took to get there.
0: That's important. And, and let's expound on that a little bit because I don't think people realize those are two different sets.
1: Um uh, his his ability to to learn a great many skills was just breathtaking. Breathtaking. I mean, he, like, let me give you an example, networking. I think most people in business know that it's important to network, right? Yes. All right, let me tell you how frank went about it. He was enormously intentional. As an example, uh, I'm gonna pick a United Way fundraiser event. Now people go to charity events partly to meet new people, partly to be seen supporting whatever it is. Uh, They may have some other goals, but those are the two that jump out at me. Here's how how Frank would be intentional about it. Say the event was to start at seven o'clock, would be there at five of seven, would stand pretty much near, near the entrance. And I would notice that at the end of the couple of hours, Frank had spoken with, say there were 100 guests. Frank would have spoken with every one of them. He would have gotten business cards. He would have made notes on on follow-up. You know, I'm going to send this person a book or I'm going to invite this person for lunch or, you know, in one way or another. And then at night, you know, we're back at a hotel and I'd watch him going over the cards and making lists of what needed to be done. And then he'd carry in his pocket that list and it might have a hundred things on it. And it stayed in his pocket until he had crossed them off. I mean, he really, he didn't, if, if you don't follow up on your networking and if you don't make a point of meeting everybody, you've, you've, you've spent the time and the money of going there and not taking full advantage. Frank did, did maximize his networking ability yeah,
0: and I, I think a lot of people go to networking events, and that's where it ends, at the networking event. They forget that the important part really starts after that event.
1: I mean, it, it's almost the only important thing is what happens afterwards. And, and Frank was aware of that. He figured it out. I've never seen anybody else be as intentional about networking as Frank was.
0: That's huge. That's huge. Are there other stories
1: about Frank you'd like to share with us today? Well, I'll share one in which, whoo I figure.
0: That, that
1: sounds wonderful. <laughs> well, when Frank and I first married, you know I come from a hotel background, so hospitality just, yeah, you know, it's, oh, uh, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if you grow up in the hospitality industry, every problem seems like can be solved with hospitality. So we'd been married like a week, and I tell Frank, Franklin. I think we should entertain every single person who works for the company in our home, beginning in six weeks. And, you know, Frank was horrified by this. It was just way outside his comfort zone. And he just couldn't conceive of doing it. But as we kept talking about it, uh, he began to think, well, maybe there's something to it. And then finally, I like it. And six weeks later, we did begin entertaining. People in our home, a hundred at a time, a buffet dinner, pretty much three times a month, and we entertained, you know, thousands and thousands of, of people, and would would have them. You know, th- this is the part that I'm most fond of. Would have them by groups, like it would be the truckers or the sanitation men or the accountants or the administrative assistants. Would have them in groups where people would know each other because it. We knew it could be a little bit in, Intimidating to be in the big boss's home, so you're there. You are with a group of people that you know, but here's here's the part. It was a great big long buffet table. There were several people, you know, behind the buffet table serving people, including Frank Perdue. Frank would wait on the people who whose you know whose paycheck he signed. But isn't that cool that that somebody. That important would wait on his employees?
0: Yes, and, and I think that is part of the key to success as well. That if you are a leader, you have to lead not only by leading,
1: but by example. Well, he was he, well, I'm going to give a quote that was important to him. The deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And by the way, that wasn't his quote, it comes from a psychiatrist from Oh, more than hundred years ago, William James, but Frank realized that people want to feel important, and being invited to his house was a way of communicating that they're important. Waiting on them was a way of communicating that they were important, and at the end of the evening, he would he would give like almost as if it was a report to the board of directors what the company was doing, you know, what the challenges were, what the triumphs were, uh, and so you as a truck driver or a veterinarian, you would know, you know, from Frank Perdue's mouth what was going on in the company. And, you know, that's got to, that's got to, again, make, information makes people feel important. And then at the very end of the evening, he would say this in different words each time, but it would boil down to, you know, he's looking out over 100 people. And actually, it would be like 50 people and their spouse or significant other, So 100 people and in in different words each time. But he'd say, I know that the company wouldn't be what it is today without you. Thank you.
0: There you go. There was the respect that he, he gave them and how they would therefore respond in kind by doing a better job.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much to the concept of reciprocity. You give your all for them. They repay it. I mean, I I think loyalty goes both ways.
0: And that's, I think, even more important now because things have changed so much with this pandemic and things going on in the world. I think people have this, this, I would call it COVID brain going on where they don't feel valued anymore. They don't feel things going on anymore. And I think people are having uh, more issues going on and they think, You know, do I really want to work for a company like Sheraton, where I've worked for so many years? Do I really want to work for a farm for so many years? There's so many more options now.
1: Well, uh, of course, I endorse the additional options. And by the way, I should quickly point out that when my father died, we sold the Sheraton chain in 68. But we, we still are a business family and we invest in other things. In fact, oh, this is just such a weird, strange thing, but... Back in 2019, my nephew, Eric Henderson, who who runs the Henderson Estate Company, he heard a presentation by Moderna, the vaccination people, that made him think, you know, these guys are really smart. They're really on top of things. But this was before COVID-19 struck. And so he invested a huge part of the Henderson Estate Company in Moderna.
0: Uh, isn't that fortuitous? Uh, yeah, and you know, I, I have, have mixed feelings the board.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I've got I've got mixed feelings about it because um, I I know they're making big profits, but it's benefiting me. So, as I said, mixed feelings.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's true. You know, it's hard to be a business person and at the same time divorce yourself from what's going on out there.
1: Uh, I can't do it.
0: Yes, and I don't think anybody can in the in the business world, because I think, you know, as a business person, you want to make a profit and you want to do things, but at the same time, there's these other things that go on in your mind too about being a good person and 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 helping other people as well.
1: Uh, the great dilemma, and. Uh... My personal opinion, I'm 80 years old, is that there aren't a whole lot of saints in the world. We're human. We just plain are human. We do our best. We struggle. We make mistakes. We do the best we can.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think Warren Buffett, who is a true business leader going forward, has said, you know, he's trying to give it back, even though he's done a lot along the way. He gives a lot back to charities as well. And I, I think a lot of people have realized they've been fortuitous along the way and they do give a fair bit back to their charities.
1: I well, think... allow me to boast about my father.
0: Yeah.
1: I remember I was really young, maybe maybe eight or 10 or something, and I go kind of stumbling into his office. He had an office at home and you know he's just deluged with books and ledgers and whatever else. And I ask him what he's doing. He said that he was looking through requests for charitable donations. And I asked him, but you know, this is a Saturday afternoon. You could out be out playing golf or something. And he said, the greatest pleasure my money ever gave me was in giving it away. Yeah.
0: And, and that's, that's, as I say, a lot of business people have adopted that philosophy along the way, because they and realize it's an important philosophy too.
1: Well, Frank was the most philanthropic person I ever knew. He was you know, the, the number of scholarships that he gave, up, gave out uh, in the thousands. I mean, full scholarships. Uh, he was just endlessly philanthropic.
0: Yes, and and that isn't that a wonderful legacy to have
1: that you're that he
0: did such an amazing
1: thing along the way. Well, again, his saying this is part of his ethical will, but he said. I'm, I'm quoting, if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. Well, isn't that wonderful.
0: Are there any more stories you want to share with us?
1: Well, let me share about what it was like going through one of the processing plants with him. Uh, you know, again, he's the person who's, he's the big boss. And I used to notice, cause I'm, I'm fascinated by body language. And again, he could have been strutting through with his nose in the air, you know, I'm Mr. Important. No, would go, say it's a plant that has a thousand people. The number of people he knew by name was spectacular. And it wasn't just that he knew their names, he'd know something about them. Like he'd say, Maisie, or sorry, Mitzi, I'd like you to meet Maisie. Uh, Maisie's son just got into the college that he wanted to get into, or or meet Daryl. Daryl has been here for 32 years and hasn't had a single sick day. I mean, he would just, he knew so much about, about everybody. And I used, to, I used to think that if you're going by body language, tone of voice, posture, that he would act as if we're all part of a team and we each have our role and I've got infinite respect for your role. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and it, to my mind, it even gets better than that. He used to very often, he could have eaten the finest restaurants in the world very, very often. He, and occasionally accompanied by me, would eat in the cafeteria just to talk with people, ask how they're doing. Are uh, you getting treated right? Or, you know, are things good? And, you know, again, how many heads of Fortune 500 size companies are just comfortable talking with the people, the workers on the line, the hourly workers? Yeah,
0: that's important, and that's... I've got two questions for you.
1: I've got three answers.
0: Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) How do you live a
1: fantastic life? Do I live a fantastic life? How do you do it? Oh, Hmm. well, I live extraordinarily below my means. I live in an apartment building where my neighbor, uh, one is, she's in law enforcement. Another is uh, a teacher, another works at the local hospital, so I'm not living in a millionaire's row, and I like it that way. I like it that way because it means I can give more to charity, which I do. So that's part one of a fantastic life. Part two is I'm very involved in combating human trafficking, and my approach to doing it is I wanted to use the skills that I've developed over my 80 years, and it's writing. So I write for Psychology Today, and I write for like five other organizations and my favorite thing to do is find an anti-trafficking organization that's doing something really neat and then write about it for psychology today. And that means I'm getting educated. It means that other people are learning about it. And it happens to be fantastic for fundraising for that organization. So that feels really good.
0: Fantastic. Second question is how do you advise other people who are listening to this show to have a fantastic life?
1: Well, I, I guess, you know, my first priority is family. If I, it, it makes me think of something Jackie Onassis said, if your kids turn out right, nothing else matters. If your kids turn out wrong, nothing else matters. So I, I would put personal relationships at the absolute top, the tippy top of it, but As far as career goes, I'm hugely in favor of continuous learning. I try to take a course every year and it might be accounting. It might be nuclear particle physics. It might be something math related. It might be first aid. And it seems to me just a miracle how often it happens that you study something and then it turns out you can use it.
0: Isn't that important there? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mitzi Purdue. A truly amazing individual that keeps on giving back and keeps on helping. And I'd like you to get a copy of The Frank Purdue Way, an amazing little book that simple steps and super success. If you want to be successful in business, if you want to be successful in life, this is a book for you. How can they get a copy?
1: Well, they can get individual copies on Amazon. At Amazon Kindle, it's $2.99. If you wanted the the paperback version, it's $5 plus plus postage. Or if you happen to be running a business of some sort and you want to give them out like for holiday presents, if you buy 50, you can buy them from me for $2 each instead of $5. And the way to buy them from me is write to me at Mitzi, M-I-T-Z-I, at mitziperdue.com.
0: Isn't that wonderful. And I'm sure people will take you up for that story, that wonderful book there. See. Thank you again for being here today. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us.
1: It's been sheer joy being with you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a fantastic day. You too.
0: You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Leica's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life on Amazon.com. And, you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day!